Welcome to episode 37 of the Fan Engagement Pod, a chat with the Football Supporters Association's Ashley Brown. Ashley led the fan takeover of Portsmouth FC in 2013 and was a director until 2017 when US media mogul Michael Eisner took over. Under the stewardship of the supporters, the club was transformed off the pitch into a club unrecognisable from the one that collapsed twice and was caught up in never-ending financial crises. Ashley now works as Head of Supporter Engagement and Governance at the FSA, leading on the reform work the organisation campaigns on. He was also the final Chief Executive of Supporters Direct. We cover every bit of ground from activism to engagement at a club where trust had to be rebuilt as a matter of priority and talk about the role the FSA plays in the game today. Don't forget we've got loads of other episodes Episode 3 of Baz Chat is now out and we take a look at the known unknown of what happens after Covid and the return of fans to stadiums, whether brands will pull back, season ticket no-shows and why we both think that in rebuilding a commercially viable club, dialogue will matter more. The next episode, episode 4, will be back to the regular date of the last Thursday of the month, this month. Listen to the via the the usual channels, search Fan Engagement Pod. You can join the Fan Engagement Network at faninsights.co.uk forward slash network forward slash join. Don't forget, as a listener to the Fan Engagement Pod, we would love you to just take a couple of minutes of your day to fill in the quick survey. Please head to tinyurl.com forward slash fan engagement pod. That's tinyurl.com forward slash fan engagement pod. Right, Ashley, yeah. So so you've I'm trying to think when I actually first met you, that was probably when just just around the time of the actual um takeover rescue really of the of, of Portsmouth by the fans. Um and that would have been remind me what what, what year was that? Well it completed in, in 2013. Right, that's the one. Okay. And so you've um you've been in the boardroom. Um, you uh, you were the you were the final chief executive of supporters direct before uh, you 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 came in just after I'd left um, or a little while after I'd left and um, and you took the organization to the merger with the football supporters federation and you now work as remind me what your job title is the well, my my uh, what my, what I do is really too long for my job title so I have to explain it briefly um, so I lead on all of our governance reform work. Uh, I also support supporters of what we call crisis clubs or clubs going through some sort of major event in relation to shares or something such as that. And then finally, I also lead on our new piece of work around club engagement. And that's where we're sort of tackling club engagement from, from both sides, really. So we're there to help clubs um work with their fans and not just looking at it from the fan perspective only okay so um uh, people um will be able to um understand that i think lots of people listening um the interesting bit when it comes to if we just sort of start on that fan engagement area where you're where you're working with trying to work with clubs and with fans um uh, what's the what's the environment like when it comes to? I mean, we all I think everyone understands that 
um, that fans themselves, supporters, want to understand what's going on in their clubs. They want more involvement in how decisions are made and that kind of thing. What's the general take? I mean, it's probably very broad brush, if not too broad brush, but what's the general take, do you think, when it comes to clubs themselves in the top four divisions, when it comes to their attitude towards engagement in that sense? I think it varies tremendously um, and, and not necessarily from where the clubs are in the pyramid. Um, there's, there's clubs up in the Premier League that are doing fantastic engagement, um, as there are in League Two, but equally there's bad examples in both. I think that um, the big advantage the Premier League has, of course, is the, is the amount of resource available. Um, and whereas a League Two club might have a volunteer SLO, a Premier League club might have a whole supporter services department um, of which an SLO is part. And they've got this whole whole team of people working really, you know, in classic, I guess, customer relations in, in any other sort of business, um, it, would be, it would be cool. Um, but still, you know, there's still clubs in the Premier League that, that don't do it very well. Um, but equally, I think we also have to recognise that there are fan groups that don't do it, do it very well either and, and that they need help sometimes. Right, that's a good, I mean, that's a good one. Um, the, I mean, it's, it's, we are, whilst we've got to be, I think we've got to always got to be quite careful of trying to suggest, and I'm not, this isn't, this isn't what you're saying, of saying, oh, well, it's, it's the, it's the fault of both sides because that's, that's usually not true. There is definitely some responsibility has to sit on the shoulders of fan organisations. And I remember myself um, trying sometimes to bring supporters' trusts, in, in my case, um, to an understanding of um, not governing a relationship, conducting a relationship by press release and by um, slamming people and, and critic. It's not simply criticising, because criticising is fine, depending on, obviously, how we do it. But that, that tendency of reaching for the press release, or these days the tweet, because it's the 280-character press release. Um, and do, do you find that, um, that that still is the case then? Do you find a lot of people, perhaps it's because of time, perhaps it's just the sometimes sheer anger about something, people are, are rushing to are rushing to to immediately express publicly how angry they are about something rather than taking it through a particular channel that they might have with the club. I think, I think that's absolutely right, Kevin. And, and the, the problem we have is that um, that's where the relationship has, has broken down typically. And building a trusted relationship between fan representatives and club executives takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, and fan, fans need to recognise that uh, as well when they're in dialogue with the club and constantly attacking individuals that work at the club whilst perhaps not fully understanding um, the problem is not conducive to generating that relationship now of course there are times when something such as that sort of direct approach is is, is right and is required but if you're in a if you're in a situation where you're trying to build engagement, you're trying to get that relationship to one where where trust and transparency uh, is happening on a, on a on a daily basis, then you have to work at it, um, and you have to build those relationships with 
with the right people. And that's why it's important for fans to select the right representatives. But of course, sometimes what you see, and I've worked in situations like this, where supporters group committees are not acting collectively, they're not acting as one. You might have one person that's leading the relationship with the chief executive, for example, or even the owner of the club, um, and doing a good job building it up. In the meantime, someone's got access to the Twitter feed and they're firing off various rants at the club. And you, you've got and you've got to sort of act act together because every time, you know, it's one step forward and two step backs every time that happens. So thinking through as a supporter group your strategy. What is it you're trying to do? Um, is your aim to build that path of, of proper engagement? If so, act on it collectively. Or do you want to sort of step outside of that football bobble and throw rocks at your club or your club executives? And as I said, there's a time for, for, for both. And, you know, at the FSA, we, we, we like to talk to supporters group and we talk them through the different paths and the different options. But, of course... Only those groups can decide exactly what's what's right for them and, and they understand where it is they want to go. And, of course, that also has to get driven by their members. Well, of course, if the people in the room uh, making the decisions at committee or board level aren't, you know, perhaps not thinking these things through enough, then that, that directly affects what the members think about things. It obviously directly affects what they do. What... what is interest what I'm interested in, and I mean I know from my experience who these groups are, or, or the ones that I I would name. Are there any particular groups that do it well um, and conduct a relationship well? Um, not no, not necessarily um, in terms of the exact structure, because I think you know there are various structures you can have. Things like obviously memoranda of understanding shareholders agreements you can have directors on the board but when it comes to the actual sort of culture of the way they do it are there any particular supporters it, trust supporters organizations that do this relationship well that you could that come to mind yeah i think if you look at the premier league to start with i think um there's quite a few um that you'd think of off the top of your head so um spurs fulham spirit of shankly at liverpool um all groups that don't always necessarily have a, a perfect relationship with their club, but it's an ongoing discussion and they tackle different difficult subjects um, and they're listened to and they do in, in influence change. Um, and I think off the top of my head, those are three great examples. I think there's other ones um, across the Football League that, work in, in, in difficult environments. Um, the guys at Star at, at, at Reading, you know, Reading's a club that, um, you know, if you go into the finances, there's a lot of lot of problems potentially there building up. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the trust have built a good working relationship with the executives there. Not, not the owner, because the owner's a very distant owner, uh, but they do have good dialogue with the executive and a fairly... Um, transparent and progressive discussions as well, I understand. Um, so I think it's quite often, it's not it's not necessarily the clubs where everything's perfect um, that you pick out the trust that are playing the most significant role. Sometimes it's where there are difficulties and difficult discussions that you actually get a chance to 
to really come into your own as a as a trust. And if you've got a club that's everything sort of moves along swimmingly, sometimes perhaps it's a little bit more difficult to prove yourself as a supporters trust or supporters organisation. No, I think that yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it was just the the the, the, the three that you name there who I um, interviewed myself, although when I interviewed them, James, Jay McKenna had ceased being part of the committee at SOS at Spirit of Shankly. Spurs, Fulham, Spirit of Shankly, all actually um, organisations at various points in that relationship that have, um, where, where the dynamics got very difficult. And actually as well, all three of them have, have, um, uh, have established that relationship either around difficult issues or have had to manage very difficult issues most all of them have had something stadium related there um and you know what you know this being a Portsmouth fan once you start talking about land and football clubs and redevelopment that gets very very tough and I mean and that's you know where I where I try to personally look at when I look at somewhere like Spurs if I just take them as an example um you know, they've managed to navigate over the last 10 to 12 years a relationship which isn't simply just with a Premier League club with some very determined, very skilled professionals at the top. Um, and um, but but also through a multi-million pound property development where they're not they're not changing the design of the stadium, but they're holding at times the club's feet to the fire in a way that I've admired since I've known them and I think that I think if people say you know and you point to Reading for example I think if people say that it you know that 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 it's too difficult or they they're struggling with it they needn't look at that that much further than places like that and it's not it isn't a Doncaster or a Lincoln where the door is open necessarily it's not it's not quite that integrated as those clubs are um or or somewhere even like Rochdale for example it's more that you're prepared to be tough when it's necessary. And actually the bit that I think works with all of these is, is, and I've always tried to encourage myself and I think you'll probably agree is praise people when they get it right. And, and the people working in the bunker, because it is a bit of a bunker sometimes in a club when things are tough, especially if you praise those people, they're more likely to give you the time of day when you really need it, aren't they? Because, you know, you've worked, you've been inside a club, you've been a director of Portsmouth, how di- how different? Tell tell me about how it is when you're in there. Albeit that obviously Pompey was fan owned when you were a director, you're still the director of a club, and there is a dividing line. You start to become the person who's responsible for the, dare I say it, in inverted commas, cock ups. You know, it's your fault, Brown. You got it wrong. Um, you know, how is it that 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 you, you know you're a rare, a relatively rare breed where you've not just been a representative, you've not just been on the board of your own club, you and you ne- you now work nationally. So t- tell us how that how that works for you, and what how that's informed how you operate. Well, uh, you know, talking about Portsmouth first, uh, Kev. Um, you know, I I followed Portsmouth for forty years since before I came a director. So you know, I think I think I could be considered a proper fan. Um, I'd seen them all around the country, seen them abroad, um, and equally um, that length of time supporting a a, a club you sort of get get used to it, particularly if you're a club that hasn't had a great deal of success in that period. Um, and I thought I'd, you know, I've become fairly sort of hard-nosed to the disappointments. You then you then become a club director and it 
brings it all back. It's like um, it's like being a, a 12 year old in, in in tears watching your team lose a last minute penalty. Um, you feel every single kick of the ball, and when the team's doing badly, you take it really, really hardly on your shoulders because you know what it means to all those all those fans. So it's incredibly difficult and 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 pressured. Um, and I did take it personally. Um, I think right from day one, we did a lot of great stuff off the pitch when we when we took over Portsmouth, but it took us quite a while to get things right on the pitch. And at the end of the day, that's what counts to most people. Um, and, you know, people will direct the frustrations and anger at you. Social media um, allows for that far more readily than it than than historically um and you have to take that on the chin but i think one thing that we always did at, at, at portsmouth um is communicate with people and that's you know the main topic of today really isn't it it's about engagement and you now however however bad it was on the pitch um myself the chairman the chief executive would always be out there meeting supporters, whether it be um, at organised supporter meetings or whether it just be outside the ground uh, after you've just been beaten 3-0 by Rochdale or something um, and talking to people there. And I think that the real fans appreciate that. And if you explain what you're trying to do and you show that you care, then people are more understanding um, but what what quite often happens, particularly with um, you know dictatorial um, type football club owners uh, that we have in some clubs around this country, is they they just they just hide away. Um, they hide away from all of it. They don't explain their decisions. They don't show their own frustration or their own pain, and that's what sort of breeds contempts with fans and and their owners when they. When they see things are bad and they don't understand why they're bad, that just makes it worse. Now, we got given a lot of slack by Pompey fans, despite um, the first few seasons where, although we got progressively better, we were still stuck in League Two. Our season ticket sales went up year on year. Um, people kept coming. Um, sometimes they were frustrated but they stayed on the journey with us and you know, eventually we got it right. We got promoted. Um, by then we were operating with pretty much full stadium. You become, I mean, the transformation at Portsmouth is, 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 there was no miracle there. It was hard work. Um, but make no bones about it. The reason, the reason um, that, that it became such an attractive club for someone wanted to want to purchase. And I'm not talking about this being the reason you did it because I know that wasn't it. Um, but the reason it became so attractive was because of the transformation you undertook. And that thing of, you know, that thing, or that, that, that it's, it's a very similar attitude. You know, the way you saw this was very similar to, to an albeit privately owned football club, but very similar attitude to the executives and the leadership at the somewhere like Norwich. Um, who I'm sure some people will get bored of me banging on about, but they're a good club to talk about. And it is that sort of understanding what the nature of it is. And yeah, of course, look, the result, you know, none of us got involved in football. I'm not aware that, 
you got involved or uh, in football because you, uh, you know, and what you do now because you wanted to do it. It was, it was, you know, like me, you kind of stumble into it because you become an activist concerned with your own football club and its future. Um, but, you know, you, you know, um, re, you know, results, results matter, but results matter less, I think, than some people like to tell us and like to say that they matter. And it's not that we'll all put up with relegation if um, the chief executive sending us all a nice email once a week. Um, but we give a, it, it buys you time. If you want to put if I sort of put it in that very stark way, it does buy you time if you communicate and you're open with people, doesn't it? And and, and I think another one and another really good one, and I like to bring this one in because it's from a completely different sport, is rugby league at Warrington Walls Cole, Cole Fitzpatrick, who I'm gonna have on um in a in a few weeks' time. You know, he's someone who, a bit like you and your colleagues at Pompey, he when he took over, he just went out and he soaked up the pressure and he and he communicated as much as he could. And it really is about that, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And and if people see you front and centre, um, there's more there's more trust, there's more understanding. And you know, if talk about a little bit of what we did at, at Portsmouth in relation to um, uh, fan engagement. You got to remember we're coming off the back of of years of of distant corrupt um, owners, multiple corrupt owners. Um, with with zero engagement, um, we we tackled it in in as many possible forms as possible. And you know, part of the remit of the chief executive was to engage with 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 the fan base. So, um, of course, we held the classic um, fans fans forums um, multiple times a year. So the sort of top table, room full of people, Q and A type. Um, environment they can be useful uh, but we also got up got out and about around the country so you know Pompey's got a number of geographical supporter groups we used to commit that um, twice a year at the relevant away game near them so you know let's say we we're talking about the northern blues when we were away up north the morning of the game we would hold a event at the team hotel Members would be invited to come along. We'd hire a room. Um, we'd give a little talk from chief executive chairman, myself, um, answer questions, bring the manager in for a quick chat. And then as the lads were all getting on the coach and heading to the game, there'd be a quick opportunity for people to get signatures or pictures, etc. Um, you know, and that, you know, that went a, a huge way to to sort of ensuring that everybody around the country felt involved. You know, we did the same things locally. Um, every year, our, our shareholders were invited to a pre-season event where the manager introduced one by one the entire new squad. Um, and then, again, opportunity for people to meet and chat with those and get pictures and signatures. Local radio, local newspaper, always invited into the fold. Um, multiple people appearing to give different points of view from, from the club, but obviously are focused around the same sort of messaging. The chief executive used to answer the phone to fans, answer individual emails from fans. So communicate in as many different ways as possible. Um, and you know, it, makes, it makes a big difference. You know, as I said, you know, if you want to talk business, 
we got more fans through the gate, even though we weren't doing great at the beginning. People bought the merchandise. Um, people bought into the idea they were fan owned. They loved that. They were, they were proud. They, you know, they sung about it. But the other thing that football fans have is expectation. And, you know, not um, belittling a, a club such as sort of Accrington or something, but Accrington fans probably don't expect to be in the Premier League in the next few years. Um, despite Pompey's huge downfall, uh, we had been in the Premier League um, for seven years. We we won the FA Cup. We played in Europe. So there was a generation of, of fans that um, had an expectation to get back to the Premier League. And I lost count how many times I was asked the question, um, but I always answered it honestly. And I was asked, how far can fan ownership go with Pompey? And I used to say, well, I really, really believe we can, we can get to the championship um, in the not too distant future. Um, but once we're there in the, in the current environment of football, if we want to continue to run a sustainable club, we're bottom quarter. We're fighting relegation every year because um, the championship's a basket case. You know, there's ridiculous player wages being being spent and we just can't compete until football changes. And I think that element of realism, realism, people understood it um, and they forgave it. But, but when a billionaire came along and wanted to buy the club, it was probably one of the things that helped swing the vote in his favour. Hi, I just want to take a quick moment to tell you about Match Day Digital, the world's first football-first digital magazine platform bringing together premium paid content from clubs, Match Day programmes, popular football magazines, newspapers and high-quality fan-produced fanzines. It's quite the list. Uh, Match Day Digital brings football content and supporters together in a single app which allows clubs and other publishers to deliver their content to a much wider audience than they would through their own print or digital sites and apps all especially relevant obviously during this covid era you can download the app on google play and apple store go to matchdaydigital.co.uk for more and if you're a club drop the fellas over there a line they're really friendly and i'm sure they'd love a chat with you about your needs Portsmouth finished very high in the first fan engagement index. And I like to think that one of the reasons for that was the culture that you set. So, um, you know, it wasn't the end that you wanted, um, but you've tried, you have transformed a football club um, institutionally, culturally, it's a completely different beast um, to what it, to what it is, to what it was. And, um, and, and, you know, you and your colleagues have to take credit for that. I want to move on just sort of briefly to, um, a lot of people won't necessarily know or understand a great deal about the EFL and the Premier League and the, and the, and the engagement at that level. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was it's a difficult environment, isn't it? Because I think people don't understand just how much the clubs are in charge, but also to some extent, just how much there is a culture, obviously, within the institutions themselves, and particularly with the EFL, it's an old institution. Um, and so, when you're when you're engaging nationally, if you want, we want to put it that way, if you when you're when you're trying to navigate that relationship nationally, you've got to remember all that. And it's you know, and I, and I think it's very important that you're there to remind people of it. What 
when it comes to influencing particularly the EF and the Premier League, and yeah, I mean, I suppose the FA as well, because you hold the positions there on the council through Tom Greatrix and Malcolm Clark. What's that? I mean, it's a big question. What is that like? What's it like trying to work with an organisation that isn't really, doesn't really see itself as in a position to make a lot of decisions on behalf of these this group of clubs and how the clubs, you know, what's how does do you think that the that the control by the clubs affects that dynamic of you trying to relate to the to the EFL? Is it is it is it is it a bit fraught? Is it difficult at times, or, or do you find it quite easy? I don't know. Well, I think where you've got to start with that is you talk about the types of engagement that we have with the with the leagues. Um, so clearly we, have, we we've built up structured dialogue, which happens several times a year, and we bring in fan representatives. Um, but also we've got operational dialogue. So we talked a little bit earlier about building trusted relationships. Um, I think we have fairly good trusted relationships with both the Premier League and the Football League and the various people that are involved in um, discussions with those leagues are able to pick up the phone or drop an email to people and discuss topics in in confidence. Um, But yes, it's also frustrating because particularly if you're trying to tackle the big problems you know so for me you know one of my areas of work is reform um i can i can have a chat with people at the leagues around reform and some people i might speak to might even agree with some of the things i've got to say but it's not in their gift to change them um but then if you look about some of the there's plenty of areas where um we're very much in agreement you look at the issues that have been brought around through covid um, the, the lack of revenues because there's no fans coming in stadiums, the fact that um, countless other industries appear to be allowed to uh, have people come into to, to their building to socialise and, and yet you can't go outside and watch an elite football game. So there's lots of areas where clearly we agree on safe standing historically, even some of the stuff around ticket pricing historically. So there's lots of areas where it's really quite easy to work um, with, with the operational guys that are these because we're in agreement. And probably that's where you've seen some of the best um, work of the FSA. Um, the bigger issues, trying to tackle the, the, the reform agenda in football, that's trickier because that's when you've got to look to, to clubs to, to, to vote through these rule changes and um, that's not always straightforward. And um, the FA, I mean, that's... Um, that's another um, relationship altogether. I mean, certainly since I used to do a lot of the work, uh, similar work to you in the policy area, um, the FA have sort of, in many respects, nominally withdrawn from from any real active role um, or expectation of intervention in um, Premier League and EFL governance. I mean, they do obviously actively are involved um, in certainly in certain ways in the non-league game, but that's always been the case, largely due with resources, I think. Um, but that relationship's a bit sort of different. I mean, I know that you have a good relationship with, for example, with Andy Ambler, who obviously re- manages those relationships externally on a sort of operational level. But how is it being in the council? Because the council itself is a, let's be honest, is a is a rather outdated institution that has been met plenty of people 
have agreed it needs to be massively reformed. And instead of reform some years back, they just expanded it and put to put a supporter representative in there. Do you feel like your voice is actually meaningfully heard in there or 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 do you think that's another area where, look, you need some substantial change for there to be, you know, maybe move to a sort of Scottish model where you've got a much more concentrated group of stakeholders that actually can effectively hold the game to, you know, the, the governing body to account, if not make decisions? Well, I think the, um, you know, on the, on the positive side, we have representation on the council. Uh, on the negative side, um, it's, it's small um, compared to um, the numbers that are on the council. Um, but then that's, you know, that's more than we have um, at the Football League, the National League or the Premier League. Um, so we shouldn't complain about the fact we have representation. I think that council uh, council meetings themselves um, are not where the real um, influence happens. I think the fact that um, Malcolm and Tom are involved in committees, um, they're connected with other council members as well as FA executives, that's the key thing that's most important for us to have that representation. It's not the, the two or three hour council meeting that happens once in a while. It's everything around it and the access to the people where you give a, you're given an opportunity to sort of put over a fan's agenda. Um, now, the classic response you often get from people in football is that, oh, well, we're all football fans anyway. But it isn't really the point because those people aren't there to represent the fans. That's why it's important to have fan representatives. It's Malcolm and Tom's specific remit to represent the interests of fans at all levels of the game. So, I mean, it's fantastic that we have um, two places on the council. Clearly, we'd love to, to have more. Um, I think there is um, many ways that we could make the council format far more progressive um, and agile um, and responsive. Um, but we also have to acknowledge that, you know, historically it's, it, it's acted as a, as a safety net um, to um, things that have happened in football. It was representatives from the council that, you know, stopped Hull City being able to change its names. There's other examples where it's the council that have, protected things that are of interest to, to fans. So although um, it is a rather draconian format, um, I think we also have to understand that it, it has done some good as far as fans should be concerned over the years as well. Okay. And when it, you know, when it comes to um, reform, I mean, it's not, as I as I sort of hasten to add, it's not a subject. It's a it's a it's an area I used to have involvement in, but obviously it's not not something that I, the bit you know this business focuses on and and we generally talk about. But is there anything when it comes to practical um, measures to improve engagement between clubs and fans? Taking it back to that again, is there any are there any particular measures? Um, when it comes to specifically that relationship that you think might be usefully legislated for in the rules to you know to to help just to help to underpin what I think has been I think has been a cultural change in football over the last 10 years where there's far more acceptance that this relationship is one of a stakeholder and an institution rather than a customer and a um 
you know, in an outlet or a, a, a retailer. You know, are there, are there particular, is there anything particular there that, that, that strikes you might be useful to help to underpin that? Or is it, is it, is it not that straightforward? Um, I think in reality, it's not that straightforward um, because um, we can put, we can strengthen the rules as much as we like, but if there isn't the willingness to engage, um, then it, then it's pointless. You know, we have, we have rules there now in both leagues that state a certain type of fan engagement has to happen a certain amount of times a year. The, the, the rules are quite woolly. Um, and a number of owners see that as a sort of a tick box exercise. We could strengthen that. Uh, we could put a little bit more detail behind the rule and we could um, ensure that the rules were enforced and clubs were punished or owners were punished if they didn't adhere to those rules. I think that that should happen, but we also have to be realistic. Um, if the person or people in the club are not interested in listening to the fans, um, then they can sit in a meeting for two hours and they can listen to what's said and they can walk out the door and ignore it. Um, so what we have to do is talk about um, and encourage the clubs that are doing progressive uh, engagement that are finding successes from doing it, we have to encourage them to talk about it more amongst their peers. Um, and that's the way it happens. And, you know, let's be fair, Kev, you know, if you look back 10, 20 years, we've come a long way. Um, you know, many, many clubs are doing great engagement with fans. Chief executives are picking up the phone to fan representatives and asking their opinions on things on a on a on a week by week basis, as well as holding proper structured meetings. So there's lots of good work going on. Talking up those positive stories is important. Um, and yet, you know, let's it wouldn't do any harm to strengthen the rules. But I think another the other thing we talk about is support the directors. You know, the, the Labour Party in particular have have previously touted. Um, enforcing support of directors at every club. And I'm often asked about my opinions on that. And I think that um, I'd rather it was an aspirational thing um, than an enforced thing. Uh, again, if you've got an owner or a board of directors that don't want to support a director and the support of directors push through the door by legislation, um, they're pushed through the door into a pretty nasty environment to be in. Um, they're not wanted. Immediately, there'll be information that isn't properly shared with them. Uh, on one side, they've got um, uh, a club owner that doesn't want them there. At the other end, they've got a whole bunch of fans expecting them to change the world. And you put them into a, a real difficult position. Far better that we create an environment that encourages that um, and where the clubs that have done it talk positively about it and tell their peers that they should be doing it also.